Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. everybody, welcome back to Murder in the Land of Oz. My name's Jess. I'm Ellen. I'm apparently the one that keeps on interrupting Ellen. I'm the annoying one. Um, so we're back for part two of Snowtown. I took a minute. I recovered. You guys took two weeks. <laughs> you guys took two weeks. Um, we hopefully just took about you haven't, eight minutes. Hopefully you haven't um, gone and looked at any yucky photos because I can't handle this shit and you can watch the movie I couldn't get through it but you can't you can't if you you can't see any photos of inside the barrels online yeah thank god you you can't see you can't find anything everything is like you know sealed and locked down and shit yeah and they don't show you anything in the movie they don't like no 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 no. but it just they show you like violent but they don't show you like inside the barrels so are we going to dive dive right on in? Let's, I mean, look, I've, we've got no news, so let's. Okay, no news. Right, no I'm news because it's been three seconds since we last spoke to each other. Yeah. Um, okay, I just want to say that the same warnings as last episode apply, but also even more. So. No small children. Uh, Sophia, turn it off. Go to bed, Sophia. Um, go to bed. <laughs> Stop it. Um, but don't because we want you to listen. So, yes, pedophilia, child sexual abuse. Uh, abuse in general, murder, torture, mutilation, blood and gore. If you don't want to listen to that, you are congratulations. You're a normal person. Yeah. Um. But also, please skip this episode. And also, we're not being disrespectful to the victims or anything. If we laugh at some things, we're weird people. This is technically a comedy podcast. Laughing, laughing is a coping mechanism. Exactly. Um, we're trying to deal with how horrific this is. Okay. And sometimes you have to laugh or otherwise you'll cry. Exactly. Ellen Rose Robinson, please take it away. We're on a time limit, so we're just trying to, like, fucking sprint through this bitch. Let's go. Anyway, I'm going to start with some backstory. So I've spoken quite a bit about John Bunting and friends, but I haven't actually talked about who they are yet. So let's begin. John Bunting. John Bunting was born in Anala in Brisbane, Queensland, I was going to Australia. say he is a Queensland person. Yuck. He is a Queenslander. He's a Queenslander. My dad is also from Anala. Um, Did your dad know another, him? No. Oh. He, my dad is 10 years older than this person. Um, I think another murder that we've talked about was also from Anala. I remember bringing up Anala in another case that we talked about, potentially an old-timey one. My theory is here that Anala breeds murderers and also my dad, who has not com- killed anyone. <laughs> that I know of. That we know of. Anyway. Dun, dun, dun. He was born on the 4th of September, 1966. So Anala is, yeah, like a low-income suburb which is comparable to the kind of suburbs that John Bunting would live in in his adult life in North Adelaide you mm-hmm. know you know that you everybody knows what kind of suburb I'm talking about so you all have a, one everybody's got an Anala if you don't know what the Anala of your town is you live there um so he had a fairly stereotypical childhood for the era which means like kind of bleak but also you know he got on as best he could he attended the local primary school and high school and he was interested in a range of things from insects to world war ii which would eventually lead to an interest in weaponry and nazism so uh that's always a good sign always a good sign always i'm very suspicious of men who are really interested in world war ii like it's only ever World War Two, and if you're just really like your main interest is World War Two, that sets off a an orange flag. Maybe not a red flag, but definitely an orange one. So an incident occurred when John Bunting was eight years old that would completely destroy his life. So he was over playing at a friend's house, 
when the friend's older brother came home and began to beat and sexually assault the two young boys. The assault only stopped when the boy's father returned home. Frightened and ashamed, Bunting never told his parents or any other adult what had happened to him. So his interest in weaponry and the Nazis grew with him. He was a known racist and homophobe. He had a brief fling with a girl when he was 15 and the girl became pregnant and gave birth to a daughter, but Bunting didn't want anything to do with the baby and never visited her. He finished, great, he finished grade 11 and dropped out of school and worked a series of menial jobs. And in February of 1986, John, along with a similarly disaffected group of friends, decided to move away from their miserable lives in Anala and head to Western Australia. But they didn't quite make it. One of their cars broke down in Adelaide, South Australia. Unable to repair it, John and a few others lived in a caravan park. John ended up getting a job at a motor museum and decided to remain in Adelaide. He eventually moved to Adelaide's northern suburbs in 1988 to live with a friend who got him a job at an abattoir. John relished the job, even though it was bloody and disgusting. He would brag that he enjoyed killing the animals, although that actually wasn't part of his duties at the abattoir. He would talk constantly about his hatred for homosexuals and pedophiles. To John Bunting, there was no difference between a gay person and a pedophile, and he was open about his desire to kill them. He kept a large collection of guns. He had a large collection of guns that he would keep under his bed. He killed his housemate's dog because it had attacked his blue healer. He was interested in poisons and his housemates found a weird stash in the ceiling of their shared house containing chlorophyll, a balaclava and a curved hunting knife. For some reason this wasn't the world's hugest red flag and Bunting managed to stop them from calling the police. In 1989 Bunting met a woman named Veronica Tripp. She was 18, he was 23. Veronica had been deaf until she had surgery at age 8 and she also had learning difficulties. Bunting and Veronica got married just 8 months after meeting. Their early marriage was tumultuous and they would fight a lot and Bunting would throw objects like cups and plates at Veronica. Veronica and John uh, moved into a government house at 203 Waterloo Corner Road, Salisbury North in December of 1991. Almost immediately after moving in, Bunting befriended one of his neighbours, a man named Robert Wagner. Robert Wagner had also had a seriously troubled childhood. He had been sexually abused by a teenage family friend and had tried to commit suicide at only seven years old. After the abuse, his cheeky but lovable personality disappeared. He had trouble at school and didn't properly learn to read or write. By the time he got to high school age, he was missing long periods of school and was allowed to drop out at 13. He would then disappear for days at a time from his home. He spent these stretches of time at a neighbor's house. This neighbor was named Barry Lane. As I mentioned in the last episode, um, Barry was a cross-dresser and he often went by the name of Vanessa. And he had also been convicted in 1980 to four months imprisonment for the indecent assault of two boys under the age of 12. Robert Wagner's mother understandably did not want Robert hanging out with Barry, but Robert refused to leave him. And they disappeared when Robert was 14 and Barry 31. Wagner's mother would not see her son for another four years until he turned 18 and Barry could not be prosecuted for their relationship. Barry Lane and Robert Wagner lived in Salisbury North and they were targeted by people in the neighbourhood for being gay. While John Bunting hated gay people and pedophiles more than anything else, he sympathised with Robert Wagner. He believed that Wagner was not actually gay, but he had been targeted and victimised by Lane from a young age. He wanted to rescue Wagner from Lane, but he also saw Lane as a useful tool to get information about other pedophiles in the neighbourhood. So John Bunting had another friend in the neighbourhood, a man named Mark Hayden. Mark Hayden had had a similarly tragic life to Bunting and Wagner. His mother was schizophrenic and his older brother had died in a car accident in 1972 and he was raised mostly by his father. He would eventually get married to Audrey Sinclair who would later change her name to Elizabeth Hayden so an abusive ex-boyfriend wasn't able to locate her who had seven children. Elizabeth was not a responsible mother and most of her children had been adopted out or placed with relatives. Bunting, Wagner and Hayden were all friends, but it was Wagner and Bunting who were the main operators. Hayden floated in and out of friendship with the other two and moved around a bit, but Bunting and Wagner were essentially inseparable. They were bonded by their similar childhood trauma, their obsession with pedophiles, and their racist and neo-Nazi beliefs. Robert Wagner actually had a dog named Adolf. So Robert Wagner was like the, the muscle. He was a really, really big guy. He was tall and strong and imposing, and his nickname was Lurch. And um, Bunting was smaller... Bunting was like small and like kind of like like an IT looking-ish guy, but he was like the brains of the operation. And I cannot overstress 
the point enough that Bunting was completely consumed by his obsession with pedophiles. Multiple people testified that his hatred and desire to seek revenge against pedophiles was essentially the only thing that he ever talked about. There was a wall at Bunting and Veronica's home that was known as the Rock Spider Wall. The wall contained cards with names, phone numbers, addresses, photographs, and descriptions of people who were known to be or who Bunting believed to be pedophiles. The photos were connected with wall to other photo to photos of other pedophiles as well as their victims. The wall was a horrific depiction of just how many pedophiles were living openly in the community and how many children had apparently been abused. So in 1994, John Bunting ended his relationship with Veronica Tripp and began seeing a woman named Elizabeth Harvey. Elizabeth Harvey was born in 1953 and she had the most fucked up, depressing life imaginable. She grew up with her mother and her abusive, alcoholic stepfather. She was physically and sexually abused by her stepfather and only escaped from him when he died suddenly. She would suffer from depression caused by the abuse for the rest of her life and developed a damaging codependency with men. She could not be single. She had a first child in 1976, a boy named Troy Yude, but Troy's father abandoned them. She then married a much older man, Spiros Vlasakis. She would have three children with Spiros, Jamie, who was born in 1979, then Adrian in 1981, and Christopher in 1985. Neither Elizabeth or Spiros had a job, and they relied on government benefits to get by. They had a tumultuous relationship and broke up and got back together many times. Unknown to Elizabeth, Spiros was sexually and physically abusing her sons, and much like their mother before him, before them, the abuse only stopped when Spiros died suddenly of a heart attack. Elizabeth then got together with Marcus Johnson. The older boys, Troy and Jamie, didn't like Marcus, and he and Elizabeth had a similarly complicated relationship, breaking up a few times before eventually getting married in 1992. Ten months later, they split as a result of Elizabeth's depression and shopping and gambling addictions that were exacerbated by her mother dying of cancer. In October of 1993, Elizabeth was deep in the throes of depression and she was unable to sufficiently care for her sons. A neighbour by the name of Jeffrey Payne would come over to help Elizabeth look after the boys. Oh, Unbeknownst, bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to Harvey, who was coping with her mother's death and trying to overcome an addiction to prescription drugs, Jeffrey Payne was sexually assaulting her children. For the three months that Payne was helping Elizabeth Harvey, he was abusing her sons almost daily. Jamie seemed to be the main victim. He told Jamie that if Jamie complied with the abuse, he would leave Adrian and Christopher alone. He also threatened to murder Elizabeth if Jamie ever told. Another neighbour of Elizabeth's, Barry Lane, came to her house one day and told Elizabeth what Payne was doing to her children. Payne was arrested but was released on bail and allowed to live in his house across the road from his victims. He would sit outside the house across the road and watch the boys playing and yell taunts at them, calling them my boys. He eventually went to prison for four years. This How is a did Barry know about? They, they, they were all like They'd pe- all talked pedophiles about it. together. Yeah, they were kind of like a you know neighborhood ring. Part of the reason why Barry Lane told Elizabeth is because he was like jealous of Jeffrey's access to the boys. Anyway. Um, I found out uh, while researching this podcast that Jeff- Jeffrey Payne was um, he was released. He continued to sexually abuse children, but he was eventually murdered by one of his victims in 2007. So 14-year-old Jamie never recovered from the abuse. He suffered from depression and drug addiction and struggled at school. He showered obsessively and scrubbed his skin oh. until he started to bleed. Elizabeth Harvey suffered a nervous breakdown after she learned of the abuse. This is the environment into which John Bunting arrived in Elizabeth Harvey's life. Barry Lane, as I said, had told... Barry Lane told John Bunting about Payne's abuse of the boys, and Bunting arrived on Harvey's doorstep one day to warn her about the fact that Barry Lane was also a pedophile. For a family who had suffered almost continually from horrific child sexual abuse, John Bunting was like a guardian angel. He and Elizabeth soon began a relationship. Initially, Jamie Lasakis looked up to John Bunting like a hero and loved him like a father, but eventually he grew fearful of him. Bunting was obsessed with guns and violence and, of course, spoke constantly about his hatred for pedophiles and gay people, who he lumped together under the name Dirties. He had confided to Jamie that he too had been a victim of childhood sexual abuse. He would take Jamie with him to target people he considered to be Dirties, doing, thing like, doing things like graffitiing their houses and damaging their cars. John Bunting also kept dossiers on dirties, including their personal information and their particular brand of deviants. It wouldn't be long until John Bunting would involve Jamie in much more serious crimes against these dirties. 
So Jamie Flasakis testified at trial that the first of John Bunting's victims was Clinton Trezice. Clinton had had a turbulent childhood, being in and out of foster homes. He was somewhat lonely and struggled to make friends, and he was living alone in a flat in Adelaide's northern suburbs when he met Robert Wagner and Barry Lane. Lane had his sights set on the vulnerable teenager, partly because Robert Wagner, who was now 21 years old, was ageing out of his interest and starting to push back against Lane, influenced by bunting his hatred for gay people and pedophiles. As I mentioned last episode, um, Clinton was last believed to have been alive in August of 1992. It appeared that John Bunting had murdered Clinton by bludgeoning him in the head with a hammer in the lounge room at the Waterloo Corner Roadhouse. Damage to the skull indicated that Clinton was lying face down when he was struck multiple times with such force that the back of his skull was caved in and the front of the skull also sustained damage. Fractures to his left hand also demonstrated that Clinton had attempted to defend himself from the attack. Once Clinton was dead, Bunting wrapped the body up in garbage bags. He then went to his friend Robert Wagner and got him and Barry Lane to assist him with the disposal of the body. As I as I mentioned last episode, after he was reported missing in 1995, Clinton was compared to the, um, the body of the John Doe at lower light, but the forensic pathologist determined that Clinton was not a match. And I can't help but feel like if they just worked out you know, who that skeleton belonged to. That it None of the other murders would have ever happened. So um, Jamie Lasakis wasn't involved with the death of Clinton Trezice. I don't think he actually even knew John Bunting at this point in time. And he didn't actually even know Clinton's name at the time. And in his interview with police, he referred to him by the nickname that Bunting had given him, which was Happy Pants, which was in reference to Clinton's loud fashion sense. Vlasakis recalled a moment from when his mother, Elizabeth Harvey, and Bunting were living together in the same house. On the 5th of May 1997, the TV show Australia's Most Wanted had a segment about Clinton Trezice, and then in 1998, the show had another segment about the skeleton at lower light, but of course, the connection between the two wasn't made. In August of 1998, Vlasakis, Harvey, and Bunting were at home watching the episode when Bunting excitedly exclaimed that the skeleton was his handiwork. Later, Bunting told Vlasakis that he and Wagner had murdered Trezice in the Waterloo Corner Roadhouse. Vlasakis couldn't give a p- precise motive for the killing, but he said that John Bunting had considered Trezice to be a pedophile. Vlasakis had also said that Wagner had told him that Barry Lane had also been involved in the burying of the body. Veronica Tripp, Bunting's then wife, gave evidence that a frightened Barry Lane had told her that Bunting had said that he had killed a person by hitting them in the head with a shovel in the lounge room at the Waterloo Corner Road house and that the body had been buried at lower light. Lane cautioned Veronica against talking to Bunting about the murder, but Veronica did confront Bunting, who admitted to the crime. Veronica stated that she didn't tell anybody else about the murder because she was frightened that John would kill her. Waterloo Corner Road would be the site of two further murders. The next victim was Ray Davies. So I briefly mentioned Ray in the last episode, but I'll go into a little bit more detail now. So Ray was intellectually disabled, as were both of his parents. He lived in the care of his aunt, who was the first to notice that Ray had developed um, sexual problems. She had caught him engaged in indecent activities with a neighbor's dog. His sexual issues would continue, and he would be convicted for stealing and assault. He moved to the northern suburbs in 1989 and stayed with Barry Lane and Robert Wagner. And you can imagine what went down there. Through Lane, he met Suzanne Allen, who I mentioned last episode, to whom he got engaged. He continued to associate with Barry Lane. He would expose himself to children in the neighborhood. And Suzanne Allen's grandsons would eventually tell her that he had made sexual advances towards them. This ended their relationship, although Suzanne allowed him to live in a caravan in her backyard. This is in 1993. John Bunting had a relationship with Suzanne Allen at this time while he was still he was also dating Elizabeth Harvey. John Bunting was aware that Ray Davies was a pedophile. He had heard it from people in the neighborhood as well as his reliable source Barry Lane. Davies spent Christmas Day 1995 with Allen, her daughter Annette, and Annette's sons at Suzanne Allen's home in Salisbury North. The next day, one of Annette's sons told her that Davies had sexually assaulted him and made attempts to sexually assault his brother. Annette told Suzanne Allen, and then Annette and Suzanne made a complaint to police that very day. When they returned to Suzanne's house, Ray was not there. Two weeks later, Annette saw her mother Suzanne, John Bunting, and Robert Wagner clearing out Davies' caravan. The caravan was later towed from the property and stored at Mark Hayden's house until it was sold by John Bunting in January of 1996. 
Annette would give evidence at trial at about a conversation she had had with Bunting and Wagner, where they told Annette that they had taken Davies for a drive and that Davies had been lying in the back of the car while Wagner pounded him down, meaning that he punched him to keep him lying down in the back seat so no one could see what was happening. She said that they had told her that they had dropped Davies off in the middle of nowhere and told him to walk back to back towards town. They were laughing and joking about the incident. Annette said that she had never told Bunting or Wagner that Davies had interfered with her children and that her mother, Suzanne, seemed to be shocked by Bunting's story. Jamie Vlasakis's version of events differed slightly. He was, again, not present for the murder, but had pieced the story together after listening to various retellings of it over the years. Jamie said that Wagner and Bunting had taken Davies from the residence and driven him out to a small town east of Adelaide called Bacara. There, they tortured Davies. They beat him severely, using a metal pole to beat his genitals until they had swollen to golf ball size. They then brought him back to the house at Waterloo Corner Road. Elizabeth Harvey was present in the house at this time. Davies was dragged, handcuffed into the house. The versions of events differ slightly between what sources you read um, because Jamie gave two versions of events, one when his mother was present and then one when she wasn't. But the gist is, is that Davies was taken into a room, either the bedroom at Waterloo Corner Road where Bunting's rock spider wall hung, or otherwise the bathroom, and he was strangled with jumper cables by Robert Wagner, assisted by Elizabeth Harvey. Vlasakis also said that Harvey had stabbed Davies down the leg with some kind of ceramic tool. After Davies died, he was buried in the hole in the yard at Waterloo Corner Road. Um... Suzanne Allen had believed Bunting's story that Ray had been dropped off far away from home. As I mentioned, Bunting was two-timing Elizabeth Harvey and Suzanne Allen at this time. He had the property at Waterloo Corner Road as well as a house out in Murray Bridge far east of Adelaide where Elizabeth and the kids mostly stayed, so he was able to conduct the affair pretty successfully. He dumped Allen in 1996, but she wasn't happy about the end of the relationship and would drive past Bunting's house at all times of the day and leave him love letters. Bunting was sick of Alan's attentions, plus she was somewhat of a liability as she had known that Bunting had been one of the last people to see Davies alive. As I mentioned last episode, Suzanne was reported missing by her brother John Martin in December of 1996. Jamie Vasakis would testify that he saw items belonging to Suzanne Allen at Elizabeth Harvey and John Bunting's home in Murray Bridge. Elizabeth denied that the items belonged to Suzanne. That night, John Bunting told Jamie the same story that he had told Elizabeth Harvey that he had gone round to Suzanne Allen's home to rob her, but found her slumped over dead in the bathroom, apparently dead from natural causes. Bunting told Vasakis that they sliced and diced Suzanne Allen, dismembering her in the bathtub. They placed her body into garbage bags and placed her in the hole in the yard at Waterloo Corner Road. They filled in the hole and covered it with a concrete slab that would hold a rainwater tank. Bunting and Wagner spread a series of lies to Suzanne's family and friends to cover her disappearance, saying that she had been bashed or that she'd owed the wrong people money and that she'd gone into hiding, or that she'd met a young guy in his 20s and they'd gone and got married. Bunting sold off items of Suzanne's furniture and gave Suzanne's car to Elizabeth Harvey. Bunting would continue to collect around $23,000 in total of Suzanne Allen's Centrelink payments. The The motive appeared to be financial like that the point of killing Suzanne was to claim her pension and get money from selling off her property as well as for Bunting to remove somebody that he found annoying there was no indication that Suzanne Allen was dirty or a pedophile or had ever done anything wrong Bunting just decided that he wanted Suzanne Allen dead so he killed her she was a liability exactly liability and somebody that he did not like so the next that beard off my throat is so sore (laughs) Talking is hard, you guys. I sit in a room in silence for 95% of my day. Um, So the next murder would occur about a year later in late 1997. By this time, Robert Wagner was no longer in a relationship, and I use that term very loosely with Barry Lane. He had completely renounced his previous lifestyle and had taken up Bunting's vitriolic hatred of homosexuals. He was engaged to a woman named Vicky Mills at this time. Vicky Mills was friends with a man named Michael Gardner, who was their cousin's housemate. Michael Gardner was openly gay and had a troubled life just like every single person in this horrific story. He was abused as a teenager and placed into foster care. He was rejected by his family because of his sexuality. He also was an associate of Barry Lane, so you can imagine what kind of things had happened to him. So Vicky would sometimes have Michael over to her and Robert Wagner's place and even had Gardner babysit her three children. To Wagner, 
gay people and pedophiles were one and the same. He didn't like Gardner watching the children. There was an incident where Gardner put his hand over one of Vicky children's Vicky's children's mouths to keep it quiet, and Wagner freaked out. Vicky asked him why he was so upset, and he said that when he was young, someone had done the same thing to him, but he couldn't tell her the full story as it was too graphic and she wouldn't be able to handle it. He banned Michael Gardner from ever being alone around the children ever again. So Gardner was living at Nicole Zarita's house in September of 1997 when she was, while she was interstate working, but he had made plans to move in with another friend, Katrina Van Gelder. Um, he didn't move in when he planned to, and Van Gelder received a phone call from Gardner. Gardner's voice sounded strange and tense on the phone. He said that he was okay and that he still wanted to live with her, but he had to go up north to sort out some personal issues. Van Gelder could hear voices in the background of the call. She was still talking to Gardner when the line suddenly went dead. Nicole Zarita returned home from being interstate and found that Michael was gone and that her house had been ransacked and much of her property was missing. She found it unlikely that Michael had been the thief as he didn't drive, so he would have had a hard time hauling the property away from the house. At one point, she was cleaning Michael's bedroom when she found his wallet underneath his bed. Vicky Mills received a phone call from someone claiming to be Michael, confessing that he had stolen property from Nicole Zarita's house and that he was going to pawn it and use the money to get a sex change. Vicky knew that the person on the phone wasn't Michael, and she said that it sounded like somebody putting on a gay person's voice. Nicole Zarita also received a phone call from somebody who claimed to be a friend of Michael's and said that Michael wanted his wallet back. Zarita told the caller that Michael could come and get the wallet himself. The person called again to ask for the wallet, and Zarita said that she wanted her stolen property back. The person asked if Zarita would meet in the park and hand over the wallet, and she refused. Then she started to get abusive phone calls from somebody pretending to be Michael. Jamie Lovisakis was not present for the murder of Michael Gardner, but Bunting bragged to him about it. He said that he and Robert Wagner had abducted Michael from Nicole Zarita's house. He was taken to Bunting's house in Murray Bridge. He had a noose tied around his neck attached to a beam of the house. Michael had to remain standing while Wagner and Bunting beat and tortured him, otherwise the noose would tighten around his neck and he would be strangled to death. Bunting would tell Nicole Zarita that he and Robert Wagner had seen Michael Gardner after his disappearance at a service station in town. Bunting also told Vlasakis to go to Nicole's house to get Michael's wallet. This is super weird, but Vlasakis like rocked up to the house and told Nicole that he was going to commit a crime and that he wanted to leave Michael's wallet there to frame him. And for some reason, Nicole gave him the wallet. I feel like there is more to that story that I didn't glean from reading anything because it seems like a very strange story, but that's yeah. what happened. Um... So Nicole ended up giving him the wallet, which um, Vlasakis then gave to John Bunting. When the bodies were loca- when the bodies were eventually located in the bank in Snowtown, Michael still had a rope with a slip knot tied around his neck, and his left foot had been removed. Ugh. The next victim would be Barry Lane. As I mentioned before, Robert Wagner had moved on from Lane, and Lane was in need of another live-in victim. That person would be Thomas Trevelyan. As I mentioned in the first episode, Thomas Trevelyan was a diagnosed schizophrenic and was extremely vulnerable. Bunting and Wagner didn't like that Lane had taken in another victim, and Bunting had also decided that Lane had outlived his usefulness as an informant of the movements of other pedophiles. In October of 1997, Wagner and Bunting ambushed Lane in his home. They got Thomas Trevelyan to assist with the murder. They overpowered Lane, handcuffed him, and forced him to record messages to his sister, mother, and former fiancé. They had learned from the Michael Gardner murder not to rely on impersonating their victims. According to Vlasakis, who again was not present but was told about the murder after the fact, Lane was tortured by having his toes crushed with pliers. (sighs) Wagner strangled Lane to death and they left Lane's body in his home, wrapped up in carpet for several days until they were ready to dispose of it. They then cut his body up, placed the pieces in garbage bags and then placed the pieces in a 44-gallon drum. The drum was then placed in Bunting's garage. Barry's body was found in a barrel at the bank vault with a gag inside his mouth, which had been taped shut. There was a rope around his neck and he had been dismembered. Thomas Trevelyan came to stay with Robert Wagner after the murder of Lane, but Vicky Mills didn't want to have him in the house. He had violent outbursts and threatened one of her children with a knife. After that incident, Robert and John Bunting took Thomas Trevelyan for a drive. His body would be found on the 5th of November 1997, hanging from a tree at Kersbrook Road, One Tree Hill. There was a milk crate by his feet and $6.90 in change in his pockets. 
At the time, pathologists ruled the death a suicide. The police followed up with Trevelyan's family and friends, including Robert Wagner. Trevelyan's long history of mental health issues made it easy to believe that he had committed suicide. Robert Wagner had told police that Trevelyan had suffered from serious mood swings when he was staying with him and that his behaviour had deteriorated so much that Wagner had to kick him out of the house. Trevelyan then returned and threatened to commit suicide by hanging himself from a tree in the backyard. For police at that time, it was an open and shut case. But Vazakis testified that while driving from Murray Bridge to the northern suburbs along Kersbrook Road, Bunting had told him about using Thomas Trevelyan to help murder and dispose of Barry Lane, then hanging him up in a tree after he started to fuck up after the murder. Bunting said that he had hung Trevelyan up and kicked the milk crate out from underneath him. He placed money in his pocket because having empty pockets would make it look less like a suicide. The next victim was Gavin Porter. Gavin was a friend of Jamie Vlasakis's. Like Jamie, Gavin struggled with drug addiction and was part of a methadone program for recovering heroin addicts with Jamie. In early 1998, he was staying at Burdekin Avenue Murray Bridge with John Bunting, Elizabeth Harvey and the rest of the boys. Bunting wasn't a fan of Porter as he was a drug addict and therefore a waste. But Bunting had nonetheless helped Porter out, advising him on how to obtain Centrelink benefits. He told Porter to act like a schizophrenic and get a doctor to declare him unfit for work. Lasakis also recorded time when, Port- when he saw Porter and Bunting sitting down at the kitchen table, and Bunting was asking Porter personal questions, like his mother's name and where she lived, and other personal questions. Jamie Vasakis couldn't recall the exact date of Gavin's murder, although it was sometime after the April 3rd, 1998, when Gavin had last seen his methadone doctor. Jamie had taken his younger brothers out to the movies. Porter was in the front yard working on his car when they left. When Jamie came home, Porter was gone, and Robert Wagner was sitting at the table with John and Elizabeth Harvey. Bunting asked Lasakis to come with him to the garage, and Wagner followed them. Gavin Porter's dead body was under a sheet in the floor of the garage. There was a large purple bruise around his neck from where he had clearly been strangled. While in the shed, Bunting pointed to a black barrel that Jamie had seen before in the shed. Bunting told Jamie that the barrel contained the bodies of Michael Gardner and Barry Lane. For Jamie, this is the moment when all Bunting's tall tales about murdering pedophiles became reality. A few days after the murder, Bunting rolled up to the Murray Bridge house with another black barrel. He forced Vazakis to help him place the body of his friend Gavin inside the barrel. Bunting then moved Gavin's barrel next to the other barrel in the shed, unscrewed the lid and peered in. He told Vlasakis that the bodies were rotting very nicely. Bunting told Vlasakis to drive Gavin Porter's car to Adelaide, loaded up with his belongings. They drove to Robert Wagner's house, who took Porter's property from the car. Vicky Mills recognised the car as belonging to Gavin. Wagner would later tell her that Bunting was paying Porter for the car and the vehicle was then transferred into her name. Bunting told Jamie to tell Gavin's other friends that he'd moved back to Victoria. Bunting also gave Jamie Gavin's bank card to use. Jamie withdrew Gavin's Centrelink payments from these accounts. It seemed that more so than in the other cases, the main motivation for this murder was to gain another revenue stream from Centrelink fraud. Bunting had assisted Porter with obtaining the benefits and he had recorded a number of his personal details about Gavin that would later be found by police, including his PIN number. Bunting had forged Porter's signature on a number of Centrelink documents and even impersonated Porter at a meeting with a social worker from Centrelink. DNA belonging to Gavin Porter would eventually be found on a piece of rope at the bank vault in Snowtown, as well as his body in the barrel. So the next victim was Elizabeth Harvey's son and Jamie Vlasakis's half-brother, Troy Ude. Jamie had confessed to John Bunting that Troy had sexually abused him from the age of 12. This was the first murder for which Jamie Vlasakis was actually present. Sometime in late August of 1998, Jamie was woken up around 9am from where he slept on the couch and handed a piece of wood and a pair of handcuffs by Bunting. Wagner was present, as was Mark Hayden. As I I think I mentioned last episode, or maybe this episode, Mark Hayden had initially been friends with Wagner and Bunting and then he'd faded out a bit, but by this time in 1998, they were all pals back together. So anyway, they woke Jamie up and they said that they wanted to go and bash Troy. Elizabeth Harvey and the other boys were in Adelaide at the time. The four entered a bedroom where Troy was sleeping on the floor. Bunting gave a signal and the four boys began the four people began bashing Troy. Troy screamed, Jamie, what are you doing? Robert and John continued to bash Troy. John yelled at Vlasakis to handcuff Troy, which he attempted to do, but became overwhelmed and left the room. Wagner and Bunting handcuffed Troy instead. 
They pulled Troy into the bathroom and placed him in the bathtub. He was bleeding profusely. John told Troy that he wasn't going to be killed, just roughed up, and that John wanted to give him a talking to. He told Troy to call him Lord Sir and to call Robert Wagner God. Hayden was Chief Inspector. He then told Troy to come up with a name for Jamie and Troy said Moses, which resulted in more bashing from John because in John's words, Moses was a Jew name. Troy instead called Jamie Master. Wagner and Bunting continued to torture Troy. Lasakis tried to leave the room again, but John Bunting called him back in. John pulled out a tape recorder and forced Troy to record various messages, some saying that he was leaving town, some telling his family to fuck off and leave him alone. John Bunting then got Jamie Lasakis to kneel down in front of Troy and make Troy apologize to him. Jamie said that Troy's eyes were filled with fear. Troy said that he had apologized to Jamie before and meant it and that he was sorry again now. At some point during the torture, John Bunting had bragged to Troy that this was not the first time the group had killed. He listed off all of the victims thus far. Clinton Trezice, who they called Happy Pants, Ray Davies, Gavin Porter, Barry Lane and Michael Gardner. He then turned to Robert and Mark Hayden and asked if he'd forgotten any. Mark Hayden repeated the names that John Bunting had said. A gag was placed in Troy's mouth and his mouth was taped shut. Robert Wagner tied a rope around Troy's neck, slid a jack handle into the loop and began to twist the rope. He strangled Troy Yu to death while John Bunting looked into his eyes. Bunting then told Hayden and Vlasakis to go and get gloves and garbage bags, which they did. When they returned, Bunting and Wagner wrapped the body in garbage bags and carried the body into the shed. A few days later, Bunting would purchase another barrel. Yude was too tall for the barrel, however, and Bunting told Lasakis that it would have to be a slice and dice. That is, that Troy's body would have to be dismembered to fit into the barrel. Troy's body was placed inside the battle barrel and his feet were cut off and thrown in before the lid was put on and it was moved to sit next to the other barrels in the garage. Lasakis once again spread stories about Troy's whereabouts to his family and friends. Once again, Troy's bank card was used by the perpetrators to access his Centrelink benefits. Centrelink documents were forged by Wagner, Bunting and Vlasakis in order for you to continue receiving his payment. Afterwards, after the murder, Bunting had asked how Vlasakis felt about taking part in his first murder. Vlasakis had told Bunting that he'd enjoyed it, but he told the court that he was afraid that if Bunting could do that to Jamie's brother, what would Bunting be capable of doing to him? The next victim was a young man by the name of Frederick Brooks. He was Elizabeth Harvey, he was Elizabeth Hayden's nephew. His mother was Gail Sinclair, who John Bunting had begun an affair with. In late 1998, Bunting, Harvey and the boys were moving from their house at number 3 Burdekin Avenue, Murray Bridge, to another house just up the street. This house didn't have a shed and it was necessary for the bodies to be stored somewhere else. They shifted them to the garage at Mark Hayden's house in Smithfield Plains. Fred Brooks was living in the rumpus room at the back of the house in Smithfield Plains. He had had a rough early life but was beginning to turn things around. He wanted to join the Air Force so at age 17 he re-enrolled in school so he could finish grade 10 and have a chance of fulfilling his dream. He had been at a school careers day on the 17th of September 1998 and had come home excited telling his mum Gail about everything he'd learned about joining the Air Force. He said he was off to celebrate with friends and he never returned. Prior to the disappearance, Flasakis had said that Bunting had called Brooks a dirty and that he had touched up little girls. He had made a comment to Brook he had made a comment that Brooks needed to go to the clinic. Of course, there was no evidence for any of this. Bunting just simply didn't like Brooks, and anybody that Bunting didn't like was automatically labelled as a pedophile. Jamie Vlasakis was at their new house in Murray Bridge on the night of the seventeenth when Bunting came up to find him. He said that he had some goodies in the old house and needed Vlasakis's help. Lasakis thought that goodies meant stolen goods. When they walked to the house, Bunting instead told Jamie that Fred Brooks was inside and that he should play along. Inside, Brooks and Wagner were playing a game with the pair of silver handcuffs, seeing if they could lock their hands inside and then use the key to get out. Lasakis played along, putting the handcuffs on and using the key to take them off. Then the handcuffs were placed back on Brooks, as well as a pair of thumb cuffs. He was not given the key. Robert Wagner then grabbed him around the neck and Fred Brooks was then tortured. This torture, for some reason, was a lot more brutal and extensive than any of the other ones that Jamie Vlasakis had witnessed. Brooks was beaten, burned with cigarettes, and shocked with electricity using a Variac machine, which is like this machine you like plug in and it generates electricity, and you have like these cables that have alligator clips attached, and then you clip the clips to whatever you want to be 
to have electricity sent through it. Mm. Um, he was also injected with water. Oh. <coughs> mm-hmm. A sparkler was inserted into his penis and set alight. While using the Variac machine, John questioned Fred about whether he touched a little girl. Brooks denied it over and over and said that it wasn't true. Eventually, Fred gave up and admitted to it. Jamie said that it had seemed like Fred had only said yes to stop the torture. While being tortured, Brooks was forced to record messages to his family members, either messages of abuse or stories about going away. The torture went on for so long that Vlasakis didn't actually register when Brooks died. His body was wrapped in garbage bags and placed in the boot of an old car in the backyard. It was then moved to Mark Hayden's garage, where it lay on the floor until another barrel was purchased. Both his mother, Gail, and his aunt, Elizabeth, spoke with Fred, hearing the abusive messages that Bunting had forced him to record before his, before his death. These calls seemed to satisfy Brooks's family that he was not missing and that he'd left home of his own accord. Gail telephoned police and let them know that Fred wasn't missing. He'd just left home. Brooks is entitled to a small amount of Centrelink payments, but Bunting wanted more. Bunting told Vlasakis to impersonate Brooks at a doctor and later to a social worker at Centrelink and act as though he was schizophrenic. Bunting then was able to access the ginormous sum of $87.84 a fortnight. So Brooks was killed on the 17th of of September 1998 and a little over one month later, Bunting was ready to kill again. Gary O'Dwyer lived a street over from Bunting in Murray Bridge. Gary O'Dwyer had been a foster child who was loved by his foster mother, even though he was a difficult child to care for, being afflicted with serious epilepsy. His family called O'Dwyer a lost soul. He left home at 15 and began a nomadic lifestyle and was involved in some petty crimes. He had been hit by a car in 1994, which had left him with physical and mental injuries from which he would never recover. After the accident, he began to drink and use drugs. His only source of income was his disability pension from Centrelink. O'Dwyer's main crime appeared to be vaguely resembling Troy Ude in appearance. Bunting would see O'Dwyer walking around town and would call him homophobic slurs and comment about how much he looked like Troy Ude. On the 28th of October 1998, Vlasakis was going to attend a party with friends, but Bunting told him to bring O'Dwyer over for drinks. Vlasakis had... Vlasakis had had previously had contact with O'Dwyer on the insistence of Bunting in order to gain information about his family situation and Centrelink entitlements. Vlasakis did what he was told and brought O'Dwyer around to the house. Robert, John, Jamie and Gary O'Dwyer sat around drinking a few beers. Jamie sat in silence as, in his words, he knew what was going to happen. Sure enough, after about 20 minutes, Gary O'Dwyer got up to show Wagner something and Wagner grabbed him around the neck. Gary seemed to go into some kind of fit when Wagner grabbed him and John told him to go easy and not kill him too quick. O'Dwyer was handcuffed and made to sit on a mattress in the kitchen. He was in shock, panicking and hands shaking, asking John why he was doing this. He was then tortured with the Variac machine and with sparklers and lighters. As he was being tortured, John extracted personal information from O'Dwyer to be used to access his Centrelink benefits. Jamie watched the torture for as long as he could bear before leaving to attend the party. The following day, Bunting was telling people that O'Dwyer had run into some trouble with some aboriginals, his words not mine, and that Bunting had purchased all of his furniture. Lasakis helped load the furniture into a trailer, and Bunting told him that O'Dwyer had been made good, and that he had admitted while being tortured to being a rock spider. Postmortem examination of Gary O'Dwyer's body was not able to determine a cause of death, but there were injuries on his body that indicated he had suffered from extensive electrical burns. The next victim would be Mark Hayden's wife, Elizabeth. I already covered the circumstances of her disappearance in the first episode, so I won't repeat it now. Um, Vasakis testified that he was first told about Elizabeth Hayden's murder when John Bunting returned to their Murray Bridge home with a barrel in the back of his car. Bunting told Vasakis that the police were on to him and that shit was about to hit the fan. He really didn't know how right he was. By this point in time, police had captured the video footage of Robert Wagner accessing Barry Lane's bank account, and Detective Patterson had been making attempts to increase police surveillance, including phone taps. Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance would be the event to truly bring the heat down to John Bunting. The most immediate problem for John Bunting was that the police were going to be investigating Elizabeth's disappearance while Bunting had six dead bodies inside Mark Hayden's garage. 
Gail Sinclair testified that a few days after Elizabeth's disappearance, the dual-toned Toyota Land Cruiser that was usually parked in the front yard of the house was reversed into the garage, where it was placed on a trailer. Unbeknownst to Gail, Bunting, Wagner and Hayden were loading the barrels into the Land Cruiser, as well as other property belonging to other victims that had been stored in the ceiling of Mark Hayden's house. The Land Cruiser needed to be placed on the trailer and towed away from the residence as its registration had expired and they couldn't risk being pulled over by police. Bunting had made arrangements with some friends of his, Darren and Angela Freeman, to store the Land Cruiser at their property in Hoyleton, which was about 100 kilometres north of Adelaide. The Freemans agreed and Bunting and Wagner towed the Land Cruiser up there. Angela Freeman said that she could not approach the Land Cruiser because the smell was overwhelming and that Bunting had told her that the barrels stored kangaroo carcasses that he had shot with an illegal gun, which was why they needed to be hidden. Bunting would come up to the property at Hoyleton every couple of weeks to check on the barrels. He had no sense of smell, so the scent never never bothered him. When the Freemans moved to Snowtown in early 1999, they allowed the Land Cruiser to be moved with them. Bunting and Wagner assisted the Freemans in the move and parked the Land Cruiser in their driveway. Obviously, parking a car full of dead bodies that stunk like rotten flesh in a residential driveway was not a long-term solution, so Mark Hayden and John Bunting rented the old Snowtown Bank in January of 1999. The barrels were moved to the bank, into the bank shortly after, stored in the vault. The Freemans were relieved to have the kangaroos off their property, and Darren Freeman asked if he could store some of his electrical equipment in the bank, to which Bunting was happy to agree to. Freeman informed Bunting that the smell of the kangaroos inside the vault was permeating outside the bank. The next time he came to store the equipment, he noticed that black plastic sheets had been taped up in the entrance to the vault. In May of 1999, John Bunting believed that the heat from Elizabeth Hayden's disappearance had mostly died down. The barrels are safe, and his family had moved, moved once again from Murray Bridge back to the northern suburbs. Bunting didn't know that he was being followed by a police surveillance team, although he wasn't being followed every day. One day that he was not under surveillance was the 9th of May 1999, which was the day that Bunting would kill his final victim. David Johnson was Jamie Lovasakis' stepbrother. His father was Marcus Johnson, who Elizabeth Harvey had been with in between Spir- Spiros Lasakis and John Bunting. David and Jamie had lived together, along with the other boys, Elizabeth Harvey and Marcus Johnson, for a period of time, but John Bunting eventually arrived on the scene. David was still living in the house when the relationship between his father and Elizabeth started to dissolve, and Bunting would threaten to belt David. He moved out and lived with his father once the breakup with Elizabeth was complete. Bunting continued to hate Johnson for years. The police phone tap recorded a conversation between John Bunting and Gail Sinclair in April of 1999, where Bunting referred to Johnson as a pedophile. At this time, David was living in a flat with his father, Marcus, and Jamie would go out and visit fairly often. And Bunting, when like Jamie would leave to go to their house, Bunting would ask Jamie to go and get David for him. Jamie knew what that meant, and he would refuse. Eventually, Bunting would start hassling Jamie about David. He called David homophobic slurs and said that killing him would be fun. Jamie eventually gave in to Bunting's demands. Jamie told David Johnson that a mate was selling a computer for $200 and that he'd have to drive out to the country to get it. Lasarkis brought David Johnson to the bank in Snowtown. The computer was sitting on the middle, fl- on the middle of the floor of the bank. Lasarkis went up to it to show it to David, and when he turned around, David had already been grabbed around the neck by Robert Wagner, and John Bunting was placing the handcuffs on him. John made David sit down on a TV set in the manager's office of the bank and told him that he only wanted to ask him a few questions. David was made to repeat phrases that were recorded by the computer. Bunting then went through David's wallet and asked him for his PIN numbers. Then, Wagner and Bunting began assaulting Johnson in an attack that Lasarkis described as a frenzy. His own sock was placed in his mouth as a gag, and black plastic sheets were spread all over the floor of the manager's office to protect it from any blood. Bunting began the torture, but he wanted Lasarkis and Wagner to go to a service station in a nearby town and check the PIN number that David had given them. The car didn't work, and Jamie called Bunting to tell him so. Bunting told them to rush back to the bank. When they returned, they found David dead on the floor with a belt wrapped around his neck. Bunting was injured, clutching his ribs. Bunting said that Johnson had managed to get his cuffed hands from behind his body to the front and tried to grab a Stanley knife. Bunting took off his belt and placed it around David's neck and began to strangle him. David managed to kick Bunting in the ribs, hard enough that Bunting thought that they might be broken. Although David had fought bravely, Bunting succeeded in strangling him to death. 
His rib injury meant that he was unable to slice and dice Johnson to put him in the barrel, so he told Jamie that he would have to do it. Wagner and Vlasakis donned protective overalls, and Wagner selected a barrel to place David into and began cutting his leg off at the knee. Jamie could see that David would fit in the barrel without the dismemberment and told Wagner to stop. Then Bunting poked his head into the vault and said they had a visitor. Darren Freeman had come into the vault at the exact wrong moment. He saw Wagner and Vlasakis enter the vault in their overalls, which stank of rotten flesh. Jamie had stepped towards him and said, Give me a hug, which Freeman obviously refused. Wagner was standing behind, looking at Freeman intensely. Freeman left shortly after, telling the men that he would see them later back at his place. They'd arranged to go there afterwards for a shower. So Robert Wagner had carried with him a piece of David Johnson's flesh he had cut from his leg wrapped up in a glove. When they returned to the Freeman house to shower, he showed it to Darren, saying that it was a bit of wombat. Once again, <laughs> Jess is not coping. I'm sure she's not the only one. Once again, Jamie Vlasakis was used to spread misinformation about David Johnson's whereabouts. He was told to tell people that David had gotten a 13-year-old girl pregnant, crashed his car, and was on the run from police. Vlasakis went to Marcus Johnson's house, pretending that David had asked him to go there to get his important papers that would, of course, be used to access his Centrelink payments. One of the girls that David was seeing was played a recording over the phone. The police wiretap recorded a conversation between Bunting and Vlasakis where Bunting played Jamie a section of recording he'd pieced together from the words he'd forced David Johnson to record. The other victims were made to record like specific sentences, but Bunting asked David to record like words that he could form into whatever sentence he liked using the um, audio software on the computer. So he was playing this recording to Vlasakis to see if it sounded legit. Um, so one of those recordings was played to one of the girls that David was dating and Vlasakis gave the other girl, who was David's longtime girlfriend, Linda, a mobile phone number that he said was David's. She called the number and a nervous sounding woman's voice answered and the voice called out for David, for David to come to the phone. The woman then said that he was in the toilet and that she had to go and she hung up. Linda called the number again a week later and asked David to please call her back. By this time, the media was filled with reports about bodies found inside barrels in the old bank at Snowtown. So Vlasakis's testimony probably would have been enough to convict Bunting, Wagner and Hayden, but it was backed up by plenty of circumstantial evidence, including personal items belonging to the victims at the perpetrators' homes, some of the tape recordings that the victims had been forced to make, um, notebooks with the phrases in them that they would make the people say, their items of their clothing their cars so much evidence from all these victims was found amongst the three people's houses that it was really just overwhelming um dna from both the perpetrators and the victims was found on an array of items inside the bank vault as well so over the trial 220 other crown witnesses would give testimony over a period of 140 days jamie's testimony alone took 32 days the juror and the jury took it took 80, the defense for Bunting and Wagner, as I said, um, Bunting and Wagner were tried together and Hayden was tried separately. The defense only spoke for 80 minutes. So there was... Like, what could you say? What could you say? What could you say? They pled not guilty, so obviously they had to mount some defense. But I think it was basically just like, hey, they said they didn't do it. But obviously that's not sufficient when you have literally 11 months of testimony saying that they did do it. fucked up. It's so fucked up. So the jury took seven days to deliberate. On Monday... What? what do you mean? Seven days? They had 12 counts to oh, consider. Oh, yes, right. Yep, 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 yep. Um, Never mind. That was stupid. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so they had the, the 12 counts for John Bunting and then they had eight counts for Robert Wagner because he'd already pled guilty to three. Right. Um, on Monday, September 8th, 2003, almost a year since the official trial began, the jury delivered their verdict of guilty on all counts except one. The jury couldn't come to decision on the murder count relating to Suzanne Allen's death. You're fucked. Unlike the other murders, there was no evidence to disprove Bunting's story that he had happened across her already dead in the bathroom. Did they get charged with, like, fit, like you know, messing with a corpse or I something think- because of... No, they were only charged with the murder counts. So, That's Suzanne, bullshit. That's I bullshit. Know. 
So Suzanne Allen's family after the trial was like, oh, this is bullshit. We want her to be retried because since she wasn't like since they weren't found guilty, they weren't entitled to like victims compensation. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. So messed up. Um, So John Bunting and Robert Wagner would be sentenced to life in prison without parole. Mark Hayden was found not guilty for the two murders that he was charged with, which was the murders of Troy Ude and his wife, Elizabeth Hayden. But he was sentenced to 25 years in prison for seven counts of assisting in the disposal of the bodies. Um, Mark Hayden actually spoke in his own defense and he had, he kind of had like just, I feel like it would have been hard to convict him of the two murders because I feel like there was enough reasonable doubt. He had enough answers to you know, the prosecutor's questions that I think it could create reasonable doubt as to whether or not he was involved in actually murdering them. But so he was initially charged with five and then it was an additional, um, an additional two counts was added in assisting the disposal of the bodies. And as I said, Jamie was sentenced to uh, life in prison with a non-parole period of 26 years. So they're all still in jail. Um, Jamie Lasakis is uh, in an unloaned jail in a using a false identity because he um testified against his like co-conspirators his identity is protected so nobody can like exact revenge and uh mark hayden mark hayden applied for early parole in 2017 and it was denied and then robert wagner also asked for a non-parole period to be applied and i think that was also denied or is possibly still pending so for now they are all in prison but Jamie Lee Vasakis will probably be released in 2025 and there's a possibility that Mark Hayden will be released as well. No, thank you. And that's Snowtown. That was so hooked. Thank you. I'm like shivering. It was definitely the grossest thing I've ever had to read in my life. And other times, you know, we can't, you know, we've said we get like a little bit desensitized, you know, when you read something over and over again. You know, a little part of you is like, yeah, okay, no, but just the men, as I said before, the mental image of those bodies in the barrel will haunt me for the rest of my days. Yay. Any other thoughts, Jess? Um, I mean, like, it brings into question about child victims of abuse and stuff like that. And, like, you think about all those, all those, oh, God, is that a all that abuse that Jamie Vlasakis endured and stuff like that. It's hard because, you know, to a, to a point, I mean, I do want to stress the point that only two people that John Bunting murdered were actual pedophiles. You know, the rest of them, it was just, it was just made up. They never did anything. That's the thing. It's just. When I read about um, Jeffrey Payne, how one of his victims ended up murdering him, my initial Mm. instinct was like, good, cool. That's fantastic. I'm glad, you know, and then, you know, Nobody likes pedophiles. No. But m- no murder is really... But it's like when you're consumed with that sort of hatred yeah. for, yes, a completely justifiable reason you were assaulted as yeah. a child, but you're going... He he was so consumed by exactly. it that he ended up just... Com- he just ended up killing completely innocent... People. People in that sense. Exactly. Like it's just... I think it's such a, like, perfect storm of factors. Like, you know, he had the childhood abuse, which obviously absolutely fucked him up as it would fuck up anybody. But then also, you know, the circumstances of his life and his childhood, you know, his lack of, you know, any kind of economic opportuni- opportunity. Yeah. You know. Yeah. His... Low income sort of thing. Exactly. The Not having the resources available to, like, deal with exactly that trauma and get help and stuff like that yeah and oh god I think also you know I don't think that the murders would have gone on for as for as long as they did if if they hadn't yeah with Clinton I well also with Clinton but also just you know the fact that you know these were people who had gone missing from like low income like quite high crime rate suburbs you know it was only, like, up until, like, Elizabeth Hayden who had, like, a network of, like, family and friends and stuff like that who were, like, where the fuck is she? That, yeah. you know, people even realised that people had gone missing and I find that crazy. You know, that is the kind of thing that really could, you know, not that it could only and, happen in this kind of neighbourhood. I don't want to sound like I'm being, yeah. like, you know, oh, well, know, in poor but... neighbourhoods, but I really do feel like, you know, 
Because people are the first to be like, oh, well, you know, you think about like an 18-year-old boy. Yeah. You're like, oh, well, yeah, he's just run away. Like he just yeah. wanted to. Exactly. He knew he knew his victims were vulnerable the, and that people wouldn't be just, necessarily be looking for them and stuff like that. Once again, stresses like about the importance of like the missing yeah. persons, like units in all of like in all of our states. Yeah. And making sure that we're holding them accountable for looking for these mm-hmm. people that are high risk mm-hmm. victims. Exactly. Well, I was re- yes, maybe they are run away and like that's that's the best scenario, but Yeah. You know, you don't get in trouble for reporting somebody missing and they turn up a day no, later. No, no, exactly. You know, but the the consequences. If you have a, if you have like a weird feeling about something, like the it, it, it's better safe than sorry yeah, to exactly. just say, "Hey, I think you need to check this out." Like no one you wouldn't get in trouble for that. Exactly. I don't know, I just feel really sad now. It is really sad. We've really been on our soapbox about missing persons this season. Yeah. First season, really it was important. domestic violence. Now, missing persons is definitely our soapbox. We should make a donation. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I did post on our um, Facebook for my birthday. I raised some money for the Homicide Victim Support Group, yeah. which was started by Anita Cobby's family. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, we sh- if if you are a part of, like, a missing persons group or um, if you have any contacts in that sort of thing that Ellen and I might be able to help or, you know, use this platform that we have, like, yeah. please get if in touch. You, if you're interested in missing persons, I will definitely shout out the Australian Missing Persons Register. Um, mm. You know, in your free time, if you like to read about crimes and stuff like that, you know, head on a website like that or, you know, the Doe Network or something and like let's that. let's see if we can... You know, know, these crimes... You never know. Missing persons cases are often solved by, you know, the internet because there is so much collective knowledge and something that, you know, is maybe not noticed by investigators can really... This is one uh, way in which kind of like crowdsourcing crime solving can really, really help because you, you don't know what you know that somebody else has overlooked. So definitely look at the Australian Missing Persons Register. It's a great website. Um... There's a lot of information on there and maybe you'll recognize somebody. Everybody go and cuddle the nearest puppy or kitten. It will take all the herd away. (laughs) I've been drinking, so I'm okay. Okay. Um, Okay. So thank you for your amazing work, Ellen. We love Ellen Tupada. Thank you. I wish I knew how to edit. Why Why would you, you know, just do like a cute 45-minute episode with all like the facts of the case when you could just really overload everybody's brain with the names of 5 million people and facts that are only kind of tangentially related to the case? That's what I always say. Why? Why indeed. Why indeed. Why indeed. Anyway, I hope people enjoyed. Um, I never want to cover a case like this ever again. Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, so we'll be in next week and I'm going to be covering the murder of Carly Ryan, which... Um, Another thing really that we ha- said that we wouldn't talk about. Yeah, um, but but I feel like it's a really important case that we should talk about because it was um, a big impetus for a piece of legislature that... A legislature... I can't say that word. Legislature... Thank you. Les- le- legislature. You're all wrong. Went it's through. legislation. Les- le- oh, right. Legislation, says Ellen. Cute. Uh, a really important piece of legislation that went through because of the murder of Carly. So we'll be covering that next week. Yes, we said we wouldn't cover the murders of children. We lied. We this lied. is our show. We do what um, we want. Yeah. Um, thank you all so much for your support um, for the podcast. Thank you for your reviews, good, bad, or otherwise. Press is press and we will take it. Um, if you would like to donate to us on Patreon and join our little community, help us sourcing this podcast because books and newspaper uh, subscriptions are expensive and we need help. This is not funding our shopping addiction. This is funding this podcast. Um, we are most likely going to have an event coming up in September that you'll be able to come Either meet Ellen and myself or just me or maybe Zane or maybe Fifi. She has yet to confirm or deny whether or not she will be in attendance. I will It's really try and hard get to get in her. contact with Fifi's people. She's so high in demand. <laughs> she's really high in demand. She just won't um, agree so to our like finances. She's like, no, I need more money than that. She's yeah, like the master she's got a few judges. embargoes at the moment, so she just can't like really let us know about what's happening. So when we know facts, we will tell you. Um, but yes, if you have any cases that you would like us to look at, either in our Western Australian season or cases we may have missed on 
part like in Queensland or New South Wales or anything like that, we are going to be hitting Northern Territory and the ACT. So get your cases in for them as well. Um, we just love hearing from you and you guys reaching out. It's really cool. Um, it's really nice that there are people out there that like what we do. And yeah. And yeah. I'm going to go have a um, – probably I don't think I can eat, so I'm just going to go home and go to bed. Good idea. Yeah. It's very okay. late. It's 7.25 p.m., so we should all just go to bed. Yeah. I do have work tomorrow, so oh, okay. I should go to bed. Um, okay. okay, stunners. Um, thanks, guys. I feel really thanks weird. Everyone. Okay. Goodbye. So, what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your Castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcatcher of your choice. That's not kind of productions podcast. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you.